Reformation podcast. We have Luther and the Tudor drama for the next hour and a half. See you later. So we're going to build a little bit of uh, vocabulary before we get into the Reformation unit. And because uh, Martin Luther is going to be our first major study, uh, we have to get some of the language that's in the 95 Theses. So some of the things that you guys are going to need to know, and I'm going to start with ecclesiastical tradition. First of all, I apologize that it's the second thing up there rather than the first, but um, ecclesiastical tradition has to do specifically with church tradition. Um, If any of you guys know much about the Old Testament, there is actually a book called Ecclesiastes, which is basically a bunch of historical documentation. This begat that, that begat that, like it's just this line of history almost. And so when we talk about ecclesiastical tradition, we are specifically talking about church tradition created over time. Uh, In modern times, we call this past practice. Essentially, like now that we have office hours, what will become past practice is this year's office hours. So it's like, oh, yeah, I go to office hours. I get my quizzes done in Searle's class or my my retakes in Searle's class. That's just kind of what he does. Next year's group of people that come in and do AP Euro will probably learn from you that that's just past. That's just what Searle does. He does office hours retakes or stuff like that. That's past practice. That's the same as ecclesiastical tradition. They used to do it. That's why we do it now. That's what it is. Um, Canon law is a combination of past practice and papal authority or church authority. So this is when like a pope makes a papal bull or announcement and it becomes a continuation of past practice or ecclesiastical tradition. And so that is canon law, where the Pope is making an announcement or pronouncement or papal bull that says, this is how we're doing it. And it becomes part of tradition. What is purgatory? Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah. Dante is going to become really what many Europeans saw their version of hell was based a lot around Dante's Inferno, Um, mostly because he was one of the first people to really kind of document what hell may look like. And ironically, that becomes very much the way that many Christians saw hell, which is very ironic because in the Bible, there's very small references to hell but it's not laid out like Dante's. Uh, Dante's is far more descriptive. It's far more, like, ridiculously longer version. And so it becomes the way people filter hell. Now, purgatory, in layman's terms, meaning non-religious terms, or, or, you know, not church authority, is a holding center. It's basically limbo, where your soul isn't quite going to heaven yet, And it's not quite going to hell. Some people, and this is where it gets a little weird because different denominations of Christianity or Protestantism. So the word Protestant, what does that mean? Protestant, yeah, the the direct correlation is that you are protesting the Catholic Church. Now, it became a blanket term, and you may want to put down Protestant in your notes as well if you don't already have this definition. Protestant means, in its most simple terms, any Christian that is not Catholic. 
it became a blanket term for all of Christianity that is not Catholic. So when you see the term Christian, it could mean Catholic or it could mean Protestant. It's kind of like in Islam where if I said Islamic, that could mean Sunni or Shia. But if I said Sunni, I'm specifically talking about Sunnis and not Shia. So there's a distinction. Same thing if I go Catholic, I'm specifically talking about Catholics and not Protestants. Why this matters is because the world for us is going to change drastically after Luther. Because up until this point, the monolithic power structure of Europe has been the Catholic Church. Kings and rulers have come and gone. The Catholic Church has remained the same until Luther. And then once Luther comes, now you have a strong group of Protestants to the point where we will get to almost half of Europe as Protestant. Um, and that's, that's a significant shift where 99% or so of Europe was Catholic at one point. So we are, we are talking about seismic shifts in religious uh, thought. Now, the reason I bring that up is because purgatory, based on if you're Catholic or Protestant or a different version of Protestant like Lutheran, Calvinist, etc., etc., have different versions of what this is. And the Jewish tradition has this as well. Um, in the Jewish tradition, the thing closest to purgatory would be Abraham's bosom, which is essentially this like holding center before you would be released to heaven or something like that. And so these traditions uh, are different in different forms of Christianity or in the Jewish tradition, that Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and so for us, and f the reason it's important to us is because purgatory became a big deal with the selling of indulgences. And what an indulgence is, in the most simple terms, is it is a payment for a get-out-of-jail-free card. So what you're doing is you're essentially saying, I would like a ticket to pay for my sin or the sin of my family member that is now dead and in purgatory. So what you could do is pay, and they used to have this rhyme that once the coin hits the coffer, the soul springs to heaven. You would pay and get the indulgence and all of a sudden your family member's in heaven. And what Luther has a problem with, remember Luther was a monk, and Luther was copying the Bible over and over and over and over again. And indulgences are not in the Bible. And so the, what are indulgences? They're part of canon law and ecclesiastical tradition. And so Luther goes, that's not the Bible. And it actually is deteriorating your theology. And you know what he is actually specifically talking about? Anyone do um, confirmation? We got any Catholics that do confirmation? It's okay. It's fine. Confirmation's fine. Uh, can you guys tell me, what is the process of repentance in the Catholic Church? This is part of confirmation. You're like, I wasn't ready for this test yet. Confirmation's later. Sure. Confession. Yes. Yes. Some tasks, chores maybe. Yeah. And, and the process is supposed to lead to a version of repentance. And the word repentance means to change, right? So the whole theology of Christianity is that 
you go through this process of repentance or in its, you know, confession. And uh, then the priest gives you a way, a road back to getting rid of that sin. If you throw, and this is Luther's problem with it. He goes, if you throw an indulgence at a sin, you've just removed repentance. There's no need for that anymore. So you don't have to change. And that's Luther's problem. He goes, and actually in the 95 Theses, he says that this, the Catholic Church is creating a human crop of weeds. And what he's essentially saying is, you guys are making your followers into a bunch of people that are just buying their way out of sin, and they're not becoming better people. They're just paying to get out of it. Um, and that's going to be one of his biggest sticking points in the 95 Theses. Now, I, I talk about all of this in intro because all of these terms are interconnected. Does that make sense? Like they all are part of a bigger picture. And if I just gave you the 95 Theses and said, read this, I'd have about 80 questions about vocabulary. Like what's ecclesiastical tradition? What's canon law? Because he talks about it a lot in, in the 95 Theses. Um, so I'm going to give you just a, a really quick background. You don't have to write this down and you don't have to write down the next one because from now on, you never have to write something down if it's before 1450. You could just be like, Cyril, it's not on the AP exam. I'll be like, you're right. So what I do want you to write down is the name John Wycliffe, and then you're going to write down the name John Huss. And I'll put in, he's on the next slide. These are predecessors to Luther. So these are guys that think the same way as Luther, but in different ways kind of get into a lot more trouble than Luther will because the world isn't quite ready yet. Um, There's not the framework or situation where these guys are going to be adopted, really, by the authority that they have in their own places, like Luther will. Um, And and we'll talk about that as we go forward. So Wycliffe, he has his belief, like the scripture alone idea, which is very similar to Luther, very scripture alone versus uh, more ecclesiastical tradition and canon law, things like that. And then John Huss. Now, John Huss is so similar to Luther, it's actually kind of scary. He's, he has the Hussites. Uh, he, he ends up getting burned at the stake for heresy. But if you look at his three points that are up there, he denies papal authority, which Luther will do. He translates the Bible into Czech. Luther will translate the Bible into German. And he will declare indulgences useless, which is exactly what Luther's doing. So he's Luther 100 years earlier. The problem is there's no German prince named Frederick the Wise who's going to be like, I claim you, John Huss. And that's what happens with Luther. At the end of this story, Luther will essentially be claimed by the the prince that is there, and that prince will declare his state a Lutheran state. Because what he's doing is not really a religious move. It's a political and, more specifically, economic move. Now, remember at the end of the Middle Ages, all of the problems within the uh, Catholic Church, and I do want you to write this down. I used to have a slide that had it, but um, I, I'll do it here with you as we go. And these are going to be called the factors leading to the Reformation. And all the people from my other classes that uh, didn't hear this before that are listening to the podcast are super happy because that they're listening to the podcast because I didn't say this in my three other classes. But these are the factors leading to the Reformation. Uh, the Catholic Church has issues with nepotism, pluralism, and simony towards the end of the Middle Ages, mostly because of what?
the Black Plague. Remember how the Black Plague, the Little Ice Age, that whole end of the Middle Ages happened? What happens to the Catholic Church, and I know this is going to sound mean, but it's true, it's accurate. This is part of the reason why St. Ignatius does his thing in the 1500s, and we'll talk about that later. The Catholic Church, after the Black Plague, goes through a period of brain drain, where they just don't have as many people that are educated. They don't have as many. They had priests that didn't speak Latin. So they were reading Latin they couldn't read, meaning that they were just reciting it. They had no idea what it meant. And that's a problem. If you go to church and the one guy that can read the Bible can't read. And that became prevalent in this period because so many priests were dying because of plague. And so what ends up happening is things like nepotisms, where it's like, oh, my cousin, he doesn't know anything about the Bible, but sure, he can be a cardinal. Great. That's nepotism. Or pluralism, where it's like, hey, I'm a, a cardinal of Venetia, meaning that that's my region that I should be the cardinal of. Oh, a couple guys died in Germany. Can you also be the, the cardinal of this state, that state, and the other state? You don't even have to go. That's pluralism. So you're, you're supposed to, if you're a cardinal, visit all of the parishes kind of on like a, a schedule so that people know that you're kind of invested in the region. Well, a lot of these guys weren't even going to Germany. But what were they doing? Taking tithes back to Rome, meaning money was going out of Germany into Rome. And then they start selling indulgences. So more money is going out of Germany and into Rome. It gets to the point where the German citizens are going, Rome is ripping us off. And that's how they feel. And it gets to the point where Luther is at the right place at the right time with the right animosity among the people already. And it just works. A hundred years earlier for Huss, it didn't work. When we get to Luther, it works because it's the, the, the foundation's already there. Yeah. Didn't like the Germans confiscate church land as well? And, like, sell it off the they will do that after they get rid of the Catholic Church as... Um, authority in the regions is they will just take the church's land away from them. Same thing that the British or sorry, the English do under Henry VIII. When Henry VIII uh, becomes the Church of England, when he decides to, and we'll go through the Tudors tomorrow, that's a fun one. Um, when he does that, he will confiscate the church land and sell it because he needs money. Um, yeah, big time move. Um, so these are all issues, nepotism, pluralism, simony, the fact that there's and, and I will put this in there, brain drain. Uh, because eventually, in, in the 1500s, during the Catholic Counter-Reformation, they will sit down at the Council of Trent and talk about the things they need to fix within the Catholic Church. They talk about a lot of this stuff. Nepotism, pluralism, simony. They're like, there's some stuff we can fix. Now, the doctrine's fine, but the stuff we can fix, we'll fix. And then the Pope at the time, which I believe is Pope Paul III, goes and commissions St. Ignatius, St. I, Ignatius, um, and Ignatius starts what? Anyone know this? The Jesuit order. So the Jesuits start universities all over the place. Their job was to re-educate the Catholic Church. Remember after, uh, when we talk about the Renaissance and we, we briefly mentioned the Baroque era of art, that's the era where the Catholic Church is like, come back. Everything's fine. We did a facelift. It's pretty now. We got this altar that's kind of cool. You should come back, right? So there's this emphasis on art. There's an emphasis on education. 
And then there's going to be a push to sending missionaries overseas so that you can essentially gain more followers somewhere else. So those are the three ways the Catholic Church respond to the Reformation. Education, overseas, and art. They're like, we need to get people back. These will have, this is how we'll do it. Um, and they recognize they have some issues. And I'm going to show you this also in a, in a uh, map here in a second so you can see it. So if you look at this, and I'll go to the Luther thing in a second. If you look at this map right here, this is a map of the Holy Roman Empire with the spread of the printing press. Do you notice all of the little dots and cities that are named are cities that had printing presses? This is this, the hot seat of Protestantism. What you find very quickly is the Protestants were out educating the Catholics. And that was truth at this time. And St. Ignatius said, we need to fix this. We can't get out-educated like this anymore. And so they will put a very strong emphasis on universities. And that's why you see Jesuit high schools all over the place, even in California today, because that's part of that order. The Jesuit order, that's their commission, is to educate the Catholic Church um, and its people. So what you find very quickly is that this region here, which includes Western France, Portugal, Spain, and Italy, is still to this day very Catholic. But back then had combined one, two, three, four, five, six printing presses. To Germany is what, 30? So you're talking about a significant difference in the access for vernacular literature. And that's important because Luther is writing in German. Calvin is writing in Swiss languages and in German languages. Zwingli is doing the same. Knox is doing the same. So all the Protestants are writing in the languages that people speak and that's being published throughout their region. And what you find very quickly is the Protestant Reformation is a very, is a reformation of ideas and education and people are becoming more educated and the Catholic Church is like, we have a problem. We need to fix this. Um, and that's just reality for them. Now, if we go back to, to Luther real quick, um, Luther posts his 95 theses in 1517. There's very few dates you have to know. I don't think you have to know the date 1517, but I think it's helpful to know the date because it will help putting kind of placement to other dates that are, that are very important in this time period. So the, the story of him posting his 95 theses is probably myth. He probably didn't do it that way, um, but it makes for a good story and a good legend. So, you know, if you're doing a movie about Luther, you got to get to the scene where he posted on the Wittenberg door because that's the moment of crescendo in the music and you have to get there. So that's probably not what happened. But what we do know happened is this circulated quite a bit using the printing press. So a lot of people were reading the 95 Theses. Um, what his biggest gripe is, and you guys are going to read this today when, we, when you read the 95 Theses, is going to be indulgences and the way that they are manipulating, in his mind, uh, the followers of Christianity. And that's Luther's probably greatest gripe with that. Now, the other thing he does is Luther 
has, and, and I'll go back to this slide for you. You can write it down if you want to. You can go back to it later if you want. Luther came from, a, he's the son of a coal miner or a miner, um, not a coal miner, but a miner. He goes into study to become a lawyer. So he's already kind of a relatively educated guy. If you read his writings, he writes like a lawyer. He, he writes very much proof, 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 like uh, the way that you would do almost geometric proofs. Okay, this equals this, that equals this. Um, you know, it, and he wrote a lot. He, he has a lot of published books, Luther does. And if, you know, if you're Lutheran, you know this, most of the hymn, hymnal you probably have at church was written by Luther. He did a lot of the early hymns as well that the stuff people sing in their services. Um, so he was training to be a lawyer. He has this conversion moment where he um, is stuck in a storm. He kind of does the old, God, if you save me, I'll give you my life and I'll do everything, you know, that kind of thing, right? And of course he lives and uh, he decides immediately to become a monk. When he's a monk, he's sitting there transcribing the Bible over and over and over and over. And so, and, and then he starts teaching also um, in Germany at the local university uh, in theology. And when he's doing these things, people are starting to ask him questions in regards to indulgences. And he goes on this thing of, if it's not in the Bible, it's not a thing. And his biggest thing that he uh, is his calling card for the Lutherans is justification by faith alone. Now, in the Catholic Church, their idea is justification by faith and works. That is the way it works. In Lutheran's version or Luther's version, it is justification by faith alone, meaning that your salvation is not dependent on your works, but more evidence of your salvation. Whereas in the Catholic Church, it is faith and works. Okay, um, now I know that that seems like a slight change. This is a change people died over. So while it is a slight change, it is a change that people are willing to, when we get to the re religious wars, fight about. Um, now, most of the religious wars, I will argue, are mostly economic based rather than religious based, but they do have a religious undertone. I will say that. That is why they're called the religious wars. Now. Uh, Luther, this is the background stuff. I told you this already. If you want to write it down, you can. I'm not going to stay on this slide for very long. Okay? Um, it's all the things that I pretty much already told you. I'll come back to it later if you want to see it. I want you to write down a couple of the, the modern states that are the Holy Roman Empire because this is the problem. So this is called the Holy Roman Empire. It was not holy nor Roman or an empire. But we call it that because, you know, why not? Um, now, at the time, does anyone know the, the king of the Holy Roman Empire? Charles V. Charles v. Good knowledge. Now, Charles V is also the king of what? Spain. Spain the Spanish and Netherlands, the Holy Roman Empire, and many places in the New World. Um, now, he also happens to be the nephew of Catherine of Aragon, who is the queen of England. Sorry let me restate, married to the king of England, Catherine is, because she's going to get divorced here in a minute. Because um, Henry has a bit of an issue with not having children that he wants. He's, he keeps having children, but not by his wife, his other, his other flings, mistresses and things. And they're giving him sons, but not Catherine. And so he has to find a reason, which he will, uh, why he should divorce Catherine. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. But Charles is, that, is the nephew of Catherine. 
Um, that's important later because the Pope has a decision to make. Do I deal with this Henry kid who's up here in England or do I deal with Charles, King of Europe? And the Pope is like, Charles, King of Europe, I guess. Uh, and so he kind of sides with the guy who has more land, which is a pretty smart move, I guess. Um, but anyway, it kind of forces the whole English uh, Reformation. Now, in the Holy Roman Empire, in today's terms, you have places like Italy, France. Now, this is northern Italy, uh, eastern France. You have modern Belgian, Belgium, modern Luxembourg. You have Austria. You have Germany and all of the German states. Parts of Poland, Denmark, Amsterdam, which is the, the Netherlands, Holland, and others. Czech Republic is in there as well. That's all what used to be the Holy Roman Empire. In their day, this was broken up something like this. And if you're in an open space, that's a prince. I know that looks like a bad map. But what you do is the Holy Roman Empire had something like 300 princes. And so, and it's broken up all over the place. By the time we get to 1555, when this whole Lutheran Protestant Reformation happens, we have the most important early date for you in European history. Because this is called the Peace of Augsburg. And this is when Charles V rage quits. <laughs> Charles V tried to keep the Holy Roman Empire together for a really long time. And then by 1555, he passes the Peace of Augsburg and goes, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Someone else can do this mess uh, and retires because he basically tried to keep it together and then realized very quickly that it's not going to stay together. And what the Peace of Augsburg does is it makes it legal to be Lutheran. And so if you're a prince in your region and you say, I'm a Lutheran region, that means everyone in that region has to be Lutheran. Now, that is what we call back then tolerance. So if you live in that region, you get to be Lutheran. If you're Catholic, your tolerance is that you get to move and go to a Catholic region. And that is what we call tolerance. You're like, that doesn't sound tolerant. Well, it was better than just die. Because that was the way it was before. Now, the second most important date in this time is 1598. And that is the Edict of Nance. Now, the Edict of Nance is passed by Henry IV, also known as Henry Navarre. Now, in uh, European history, there are a number of significant moments in European history, and Henry IV has probably one of them. It's called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, or in Game of Thrones term, the Red Wedding, um, because it's the same thing. Now, throughout European history, I will make all of the Game of Thrones references that you would like, because all he did was take European history, shove it together, and put it into a story with dragons. And that's essentially European history repackaged. And he does say that he doesn't reference anything, but he does. Um, and so the, the Red Wedding is essentially St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And when we get to St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, that'll matter more to you. But that's Henry IV's wedding day. 
and they kill thousands of Protestants at his wedding and they try to kill him and they miss. They don't get him. Um, and then he becomes the king of France and he does, he pulls a 180. He was a Huguenot and that's, he was a Protestant and that's why he was going to get killed. And then when he takes the throne, he becomes a Catholic. But he signs the Edict of Nantes, which makes it legal in France to be a Protestant. So he extends tolerance to the group that he used to be a part of. And he's quoted as saying, uh, Paris is worth a mass. He realized that the majority of Parisians or Frenchmen were Catholic. And so he converts to become king, but he makes it legal to be a Protestant. That's the Edict of Nantes. His grandson, grand-grandson, Louis XIV, will get rid of the Edict of Nantes and make it so that it's Catholic only again. That's Louis XIV. Yeah? Well, you kind of answered my question because I thought all the Huguenots died and he kind of... They don't, but I'll answer it as we go, actually. Now, the other date that is important to you is 1648. And this is the date that is the most important date of all of the beginning of European history. And the reason is this is called the Peace of Westphalia. And it does a number of things. I will tell you them, but I will tell you what to write down and what's important most for us. So the Peace of Westphalia makes it so that Catholics, Lutherans, and Calvinists all become legitimate religions. So it adds Calvinist to that tolerance. And again, it's if you're in a Calvinist region, you get tolerance. It also, and you don't need to write this down because you'll write it down later, it creates the Swiss Confederation, so it allows Switzerland to become a separate state. It gets rid of Spain from the Spanish Netherlands, so now they become the Netherlands uh, with no Spanish control. Um, it divides a bunch of other things within Europe, and it ends the Thirty Years' War, which is probably the most important uh, war, religious war of that century. Um, so 1648 is actually the end of period one. So period one goes 1450 to 1648. 1648 is one of the most important dates in European history. So it's the one that if I, you know, by the time we get to January, I'm like, what is 1648? You'd be like, it's a piece of Westphalia. Stop asking me. Um, because I will ask you a lot. What is the most important date back in? And it's that 1648. Okay. Um, I am going to stop there for now because I'm going to have you guys read the 95 theses and I wanted to just intro Luther, intro some of the Protestant stuff. Tomorrow I'm going to get into the uh, Tudors and the English Reformation, which is going to break away from the Catholic Church, but not really, but sort of, but kind of, you know, whatever. Um, and that'll be tomorrow and Friday, but tomorrow's a bit of a minimum day, so that's what you'll get. So in your unit guide, you're going to want to add diet. Back then they said it more diet, which means a council. Now, a diet is a meeting, and that's going to be important because it's probably underneath the uh, waters or something like that. It's probably really hard to get. Um, a meeting is what I get to do today. So I get to go to a diet while you have the week or day off after that. Yeah, no, it's fine. You're welcome. I, I wanted to go to a meeting because I love meetings, uh, and I get to go to a goal-setting meeting. Don't worry, guys. I've already set my goals.
Yes. Well, I, I got the other stuff. So anyway, a diet is a council or meeting. The other guy, and you got to make sure that you do have him in your notes, is Charles V. Charles V is probably at one point known as the king of Europe because he's the king of the Holy Roman Empire, shortened down to the HRE. He's the king of Spain. And he's also the king of the Spanish Netherlands. And he is in charge of a number of New World acquisitions. Um, so, the uh, other thing I want you to write down is recant, which is in red on the slideshow. And to recant is to go back on what you said before. Now, Luther will not do that. He says, conscience will not let me to. He decides to instead go against it. Another guy that's really famous for recanting in this same period, uh, about 80 years later, is Galileo. Um, Galileo did the old, I recant, but it moves, which is kind of like saying, I don't recant, but I recant. And I'll accept house arrest for the rest of my life. Unfortunate, really. Um, but what happens with Luther after the Diet of Worms is he will be adopted, essentially, by Frederick of Saxony. And what this means is that Frederick is saying, this: I will accept Luther as my problem. And that takes it off of the hands of Charles V. Because Charles V, if he's in charge of this thing, really has a bit of an issue. Now, this will eventually become the ending of Charles V because Charles V deals with this Lutheran problem for a long period of time. He deals with English problem, which we're going to talk about today. And eventually that's why when I told you the other day that when he signed the Peace of Augsburg, he will essentially rage quit because he's like, that's it. I've had enough. I did, I did my part and he will give the throne to someone else after the Peace of Augsburg is signed. So from this day forward, uh, Lutheranism just spreads, kind of like wildfire. Um, you have it going mostly north, and much of what's going to be west of Luther and south of Luther will be Calvinist Protestantism, and north going kind of straight up towards uh, Denmark, Sweden, and the rest of the Scandinavian countries are mostly going to be Lutheran. So this Protestant break with the Catholic Church is really the demise of a monolithic power structure in European history. Until Luther, the Catholic Church was more important than kings and queens. Because remember, they're the people that appointed kings and queens as having God's blessing. And so up until this point, the Catholic Church had a huge role in people's life. And now there is a split with that. This is a monumental shift for us in European history. Now, going forward, I'm going to put this on a separate slide just so that you can see it. And it's actually on a separate slide for you already. I kind of did this last period, but just so that you get a visual, the term Christian is a term for both Catholics and Protestants, which means that Protestant is a blanket term for everything that's Christian, but not Catholic. 
So it can include today evangelicals, Seventh-day Adventists, Puritans, Quakers, Calvinists, Zwinglians, Presbyterians, Assemblies of God, all sorts of Baptists, uh, Anabaptists, all of them get thrown into Protestant. And so the reason you have to know those terms is that if the term on a test just said Protestant, you can just immediately eliminate Catholic because that's the only thing it's not, right? If the term says Catholic, you can eliminate everything that's Protestant. And that's meaningful when you're taking a test, right? So you want to make sure that you understand kind of the basics of these terms so that on tests you can say, okay, well, then I know it's not this because he's a uh, Protestant. Um, oh, I know it's not this because he's a Catholic. Yeah. That Eastern Orthodox is technically Protestant because it's not Catholic and they're protesting the Catholic Church, honestly. They see themselves as the original church. Uh huh. Can you go back to that This one? Yeah. So, Christian is the blanket term for everything that is Catholic and Protestant. So, the, the key here is, is uh, Christ followers. So, if you are a Christ follower, you, you go into that term. If you're a Protestant, you could be all of these other things. And that, that blanket is just going to get wider and wider and wider the, the more that we go forward. So, um, I'm going to move on to the tutors. And when we move on together... This is where it's going to get a little bit difficult to keep up with me. But realize that you probably don't need to write down everything. I will try to kind of point you to the things that I think are the most important to write down. If you do try to write down everything, I promise you will not be able to while it's up there. You're going to have to have a different resource with you to do that. Um, Now, the tutors and the tutor drama in England. It's really the first time that we're entering England for us in our study. So far, we've looked at Italy. Uh, We've looked at Germany with Luther. We've briefly discussed some things with Spain. We've briefly discussed France, but we really haven't gone to England yet, right? And for us in this class, England starts after the War of the Roses, meaning that You have the War of the Roses, which is a series of civil wars and wars of succession of competing families that are trying to vie for the throne. Very Game of Thrones-like. By the time you get to Henry Tudor, you will have, at that point, the Tudor dynasty, which is right around 1485. The Tudor dynasty will go from 1485, and it will end with the end of Elizabeth, which is right around 1600. Right around 1600. So about 120 years, the Tudors are in charge. Most of that time is Henry and Elizabeth. And then you got two other ones in the middle that are really short reigns. And we'll talk about that when we get there. The reason that this is an important moment in English history is that England had just gone out of the Hundred Years' War and Civil War for the last, I don't know, 150 years. They're not into the idea of fighting themselves anymore. They would love to just have a period of peace. That would be excellent. And so Henry marries Elizabeth of York in order to create a kind of alliance within uh, noble families within England. And they will have four children. 
Now on Monday, you guys are going to have one of those tests where it's just purely memorization. And then you're going to have one question that's more of a short answer question that you would have. Um, the memorization is going to have to do with a Tudor family tree. I'll tell you everything that you're going to need to know for that. But this is the first part. Henry and Elizabeth have four children. Their four children are, you need to know this, Arthur. Now, you don't need to know their titles. You don't need to know Arthur, Prince of Wales. Arthur, Henry, Margaret, Mary. So if you're talking about a period of time after really a, a long period of civil unrest and civil war, having four children is a good start. That means that the line of succession is relatively good. Going forward, you don't have to worry about too much succession and who's going to come next because it's going to be in your family. Um, but there's going to be a problem. Now, I also talked about in this class when we talked about the Renaissance that a lot of that, remember the merchant wealth that's coming into Venice and Florence and Rome and all, all that wealth that's coming in, that's going to make the South really the, the beacon of wealth in Europe at around 1480. By the time you get to the mid-1500s, that wealth is shifting. And much of it is actually through trade. So which country is becoming incredibly wealthy through overseas trade? They will by 1600. Before the Netherlands, who starts getting Spain? Spain is the big one. So Spain is acquiring a number of territories in the New World. And there's a whole Treaty of Tordesillas, which between the Spanish and the Portuguese, they draw a line on a map. And the first line they drew was so bad that they're like, Portugal didn't get anything. We got to draw it again. And then they drew it again. And Portugal got Brazil and Spain got the rest. And so that's why today Portu or Brazil speaks Portuguese and the rest speaks mostly Spanish because they divided it back then. Well, Spain is just dumping money into Southern Europe. Because what's going to happen with the Protestant uh, Reformation is that by the time Charles V is done, the next significant ruler of Spain is going to be Philip II. And Philip II, his goal in life is to re-Catholicize Europe. And so he's just dumping silver into the uh, southern market, trying to raise armies and build things to defeat the Protestants and fight them. So much so that he hyperinflates the southern economy of Europe. Because think of it this way. It, back in the day where silver is a way that you purchase goods, if you just dump silver into the market, what did you just do? You make it worthless. So if you just dump, it's to, in today's terms, it's like just dumping dollars into the market. If the Fed decided, let's just print two trillion more dollars. Just because we'd be like, woohoo, we got more money. But the problem is everyone's got more money. So everyone's money isn't worth as much. That's all that happened. It's not like, woohoo, we got more money. We can buy more things. Mm -mm. Everyone's got more money. But the products that everyone is buying didn't go up too. So the price of goods just go up. Credit called inflation. Well, Philip dumped so much silver into the southern economy, he hyperinflated the southern economy. So Spain will have a period of wealth that they will destroy themselves. And the British and the Dutch will become really kind of the big 
movers and shakers by the end of the 1600s, the Dutch specifically, and then England will start catching up by the time you get to 1700. Now, England and Spain are going to make an alliance with this marriage of Arthur and the daughter of Ferdinand Ferdinand and Isabella, who are known for what? Killing non-Catholics, right? The Spanish Inquisition. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. So, they will kill a number of non, a lot of non-Catholics, which we can assume that Catherine is a little Catholic or a lot of Catholic, okay? That is an important underlying factor here. And the theme for you going forward is every child of Henry will follow the religion of their mother. Remember, Henry has six wives. He has three children by those six wives. All three children have a different religion. They all follow the religion of the mother. So Catherine's child will be Catholic. Okay. Now, like I said, Arthur is the one who married Catherine, and then Arthur dies. And Catherine goes, don't worry, we never had sex. And they're like, okay. Um, And so... She says, I can marry Henry. So instead, Catherine marries Henry. Now, there's a small problem with this. There's a Bible verse in Leviticus that I'm going to quote here. says, thou shalt not marry thy brother's widow. Direct quote. Henry goes, I can't marry her. It says in the Bible, I can't marry her. And so what do you think they need to do in order to make this happen? Who do they need? The Pope. Because the, the Pope can do what? Anything. Say that it's okay. Yes. So the Pope issues a papal dispensation and says, it's okay. Henry can marry Catherine. This will be a problem later because Henry thinks that God is cursing him by Catherine And they're going to have a number of miscarriages, and then eventually they only have one child, uh, and it's not a boy. So Henry's like, God is definitely punishing me. Um, That's going to be one of the reasons why he will eventually divorce. Now, they will get married. Obviously, Henry is a bit younger than Catherine because originally Catherine was intended to marry Arthur. Arthur was the older son. Um, But honestly, when it comes to age differences, I'm going to show you some age differences in here that will make you squeal a little bit. Um, Henry will marry people much younger than him later, Um, but like 20 to 30 years younger. Now, Henry is a very interesting guy. Uh, I would say he's a bit, he's just a big bag of irony. He's a humanist. He's a Renaissance humanist slash Christian humanist. He's a devout Catholic. Um, He does pretty much everything that Castiglione would call a courtier or a Renaissance man. He loves to hunt. He plays music. He publishes books. He's brilliant by most people's account, really athletic. Everyone's like, wait a second, Henry's athletic? I've seen pictures. He's not athletic. Henry's pictures were mostly created after he had a really bad hunting accident that basically rendered him unable to walk most times. So he gained a lot of weight after that. Plus, he's also known for his love of prime rib, uh, which he ate a lot of. If anyone's been to uh, House of Prime Rib in the city, 
One of them is called the King's Cut, which is literally Henry's Cut, um, because he loved meat. Okay. Uh, now, he was eating like that after getting severely injured in the leg to where he, he almost at, at one point, I think they, they wanted to amputate. Um, but it was, it was bad. He couldn't walk very well. Before that, he was known as a pretty good athlete. Um, the other thing is, when Luther writes his, or his 95 Theses, he writes in defense of the seven sacraments, which is a defense of Catholicism against Luther. And this is possibly ghostwritten by Sir Thomas More, because Sir Thomas More was one of his best friends and good friends until eventually he'll kill Sir Thomas More. Um, remember the whole irony thing I told you about? So Henry will get issued by the Pope Defensor Fidei, which means he is defender of the faith, which ironically he will eventually destroy the faith in England by going to his own Church of England. So again, his whole life is just filled with irony. Now, I used to have you read uh, In Defensor Fidei, or not Defensor Fidei, I'd, I'd have you read In Defense of the Seven Sacraments. The, the problem I have with that now is that even the expert excerpt that I have that's short, I can sum up for you very quickly what it says without you reading it. It basically says, Luther, you're wrong. That's it. Um, now, it says it in a very eloquent Christian humanist way, but it pretty much just says, uh, stay in your lane, Luther, you're wrong. That's about it. Now, I will probably save excerpts of that for a test someday, just saying, um, but it's not very long. And I think I actually have uh, it on my website as an, an optional reading. So if you're interested in the reading, it's only three quarters of a page or something like that of an excerpt. Now, in 20 years of marriage to Mary, or sorry, in marriage to Catherine, he will have one surviving heir. The other children that, that he was supposed to have with Catherine die mostly before they're born. Um, so meaning uh, miscarriages. And out of the 11 legitimate pregnancies, meaning two wives that were actually his wives, only three of them will survive. So he had a rough go with pregnancies, not literally, but, you know, his wife's pregnancies. Um, now, he did have a number of illegitimate children. Uh, and that also somewhat angered him because some of his illegitimate children were male. Uh, but Catherine was not giving him a male heir. So he thinks God is punishing him. And so... In order to, and, and I know that this sounds like, oh, Henry's just going to bra- break away from the church because he's trying to get a divorce. I mean, sure, if you want to be really simplistic, yeah. But to be more holistic in our answer of why he's going to break away from the church, he's worried that his country is going to devolve back into civil war again if he can't create a line of succession. So while it does seem ridiculous to break away from the Catholic Church just to get a divorce, he will for more reasons than simply that. Now, he does, before he gets a divorce, he tries to get or find a reason to get rid of Catherine. Because back then, you couldn't exactly just divorce someone for nothing. You had to have a reason. And so Woolsey, 
is sent to investigate Catherine's life. And Cardinal Wolsey is really the highest uh, cardinal in England at the time, worked for the king and reported back to Rome. And Wolsey comes back to Henry and says, I'm sorry, Catherine is a saint. She goes to Mass every day. She comes back. She deals with Mary. And that's it. She's not cheating on you. She doesn't do anything that would be considered treason. She's practically perfect. And Henry's like, you must be on her side. That's it. You're out of here. So he banishes Wolsey eventually because he thinks that Wolsey's on Catherine's side. And instead, while this is all going on, he finally meets a young girl named Anne Boleyn. Now, Anne Boleyn is kind of an interesting character. Uh, her and her sister, were they grew up in the French court. So they, while they are English and from an English family, uh, they come from a relatively wealthy family, spent a lot of time in France. Anne Boleyn was most likely a Lutheran. Um, we're pretty sure she was a Lutheran. You want to put that down, that's a good idea because that's going to matter later. And she will become a lady-in-waiting to Catherine. What is a lady-in-waiting? Basically, it's Catherine. Yeah, so um, if you're a lady-in-waiting, it means you're basically a a maid or a handmaid to the queen. And it there is a first lady-in-waiting where that could be a, a thing. But what it, what it comes down to is a lot of wealthy families would send their daughters to be a lady-in-waiting, and they would tell them, do not become the king's mistress, because we want you to marry a noble. And if you become the king's mistress, the thing about court is everyone knows what's going on at court. And so rumors go real fast. And so their job is to be present at court, which is essentially the government, Right. And be visible so that a noble coming in to do business could see a lady in waiting and hopefully create an alliance between those families or something like that. So it was a way for wealthy people to get married. Well, Anne Boleyn, who's a lady in waiting, Henry sees her and he goes, I have to have her. And so he goes to Anne Boleyn and says, "Uh, will you be my mistress? And Anne Boleyn says, no. But if marriage is on the table, basically saying no, but, you know, if if that's a thing you're interested in, I'll get married. Um, Obviously, Catherine's a bit in the way. And so Henry, who's already having issues with Catherine and can't continue to have children, uh, decides I need to have Anne Boleyn. I'm going to marry Anne Boleyn and I need to find a way to divorce Catherine. So. What he does is he sends word to the Pope. It says, Pope, I need a divorce or annulment. And the problem that the Pope has is that the Pope has to go talk to someone first. Who does the Pope have to go talk to? Catherine. Charles V, yeah. who is the king of basically Europe. Remember that? Yeah. He's the king of Spain. He's the king of the Holy Roman Empire, king of the Spanish Netherlands. And the Pope goes, wait a second. Charles V is Catherine's nephew. I need to talk to Charles (laughs) because Charles is also the cousin of Catherine's daughter, Mary. And so the Pope goes, Charles, um, I need to annul the marriage of your aunt 
and I'm sorry, but this might kind of make your cousin a bastard child. And, ha and Charles goes, uh-uh. No, you can't. And so the Pope decides to go with the side of Charles rather than the side of Henry and basically says nothing. He just delays. And so the king is like, I'm getting restless. He keeps sending more people to the Pope, trying to get an answer. Eventually, the Pope just says no. Well, there's a Lutheran in England. Now, back then, it was illegal to be a Lutheran. I'll pause there and I'll keep this going on Friday. So you guys just got to remind me that I'm at uh, the King's Great Matter. Last time we were doing this, we talked a little bit about uh, Henry and why he needed an annulment of his marriage. And eventually the, the biggest issue obviously became Charles V and his relationship to Catherine uh, of Aragon. So the person who comes up with a solution for him is going to be none other than Thomas Cramner, who is a friend of Anne Boleyn, probably also a Lutheran. And he comes up with the idea that Henry should just break away from the Catholic Church. Now, that is a good option for Cramner for a variety of reasons. The biggest reason is that he probably didn't want to be Catholic anyway. So breaking away from the Catholic Church makes some sense. Secondly, um, this gives him the ability to present Henry with an alternative to staying married to Catherine, which would probably endear him to Henry in the future. And so that's probably one reason why he will present Henry with this option. Originally, Henry will decline the option and say, no, let's think about something else. Maybe it'll work out. Uh, and he goes to uh, Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More, of course, says, no, don't do this. Don't do it. Um, breaking from the Catholic Church would be a bad idea. At the end of the day, he does it anyway. So he, he, he decides to go with Cramner. And what Cramner tells him is, look, if you break away from the Catholic Church, we'll make you the head of the, the Church of England. We don't need the Pope. And you're ordained by God anyway. God made you the king. So why can't you just be the head of the English Church? And Henry decides that's a decent idea. So he does and passes with Parliament the Act of Supremacy as well as the Act of Succession. The Act of Supremacy is passed in 1534, and it gives the king the title of both king and head of the English church. Now, if we're talking about the separation of church and state, this is literally the opposite, because this is where the church and the state are the same. Um, now, it's not a pure theocracy, because... A theocracy is where you create laws that are built around church law. But it is definitely a mingling of the church-state relationship. That is definitely true. But England still remains laws outside of uh, their religion, at least at this time. Later, uh, Cramner will be named Archbishop of Canterbury, which makes him the highest office in the English church or Church of England and allows Cramner to start to create some doctrine for the Church of England, which is closer to Lutheranism than it is to Catholic. Um, now, it, for the most part, the Church of England is very much Catholic in doctrine. There's a few differences. Uh, the significant difference is obviously you get rid of the Pope, which is a significant difference. I do realize that. Um, but it allows him to marry Anne Boleyn. And Anne Boleyn 
will get married to Henry in May of 1534. And then May, June, July, August, September, five months later, they have Elizabeth, who is not premature. So this is a bit of an issue. Um, she does get the endearing title of the great whore by the common people, which I realize seems rude. But uh, she does eventually die for this because many people started to think that she was kind of sleeping around before she was with the king. So why would she stop? Um, and that eventually is the reason why Anne Boleyn will die is because she is uh, caught up with an, the idea that she is having a relationship with six members of the English court. Um, I'm not sure why they rested on six, but that's what they got to. Yes. Um, that's an interesting idea. So that, that will become a underlying factor for the reign of Elizabeth is that is she really Henry's kid? Um, and there are a number of rumors, mostly started by Philip II, who we'll talk about later, that she wasn't. But for all intents and purposes, Henry says that she's Anne Boleyn and his child. So he makes her um, his daughter. Now, Going forward, he has another issue with Sir Thomas More. And because we are uh, looking at some of the ways that other Catholics are kind of resisting this shift, Sir Thomas More will refuse to go along with this divorce. Um, for a long time, Sir Thomas More was actually doing a lot of Henry's dirty work when it came to the Lutherans. And so at the time, before they switched to the Church of England, it was highly illegal to have any Protestant documents in England. If you were found with them, you could be burned at the stake and your books would be burned as well. They were trying to find books that were of Lutheran origin for a long period of time. Remember, Henry is highly Catholic before he switches to the Church of England. And so Sir Thomas More was a big part of that. And by the time Henry uh, decides to break away, he says, look, Sir Thomas More, you have to go with me here and say that this is okay. And Sir Thomas More is known as saying, uh, I am the king's servant, but God's first. And so it's his way of basically saying, I can't by my conscience break away with you. And so Henry begrudgingly uh, executes his former friend. Uh, he did not go to the execution, but he did hear it. And apparently he was very distraught about having to do it. But you got to think of it this way as well. If the king allows Sir Thomas More to live, he's saying that it is okay to go against what the king says. And so it becomes a matter of conscience for Sir Thomas More, and then it becomes a matter of law for Henry. And at that time, the king was supposed to uphold the law, and so he almost is forced into killing him. And I know that sounds harsh, but in that world, that was kind of what he had to do. Now, in the next couple years, Anne Boleyn has an issue. She, after she has Elizabeth, has two miscarriages, one of which we believe was probably a boy. And Henry thinks, oh no, God is punishing, punishing me again. Uh, what is the problem with this Anne Boleyn girl? And because it's clearly not his fault. So Anne Boleyn, he says, I got to find out why she's having miscarriages. So he gets Woolsey to try to find out what the problem is with Anne. Now, Woolsey doesn't like Anne, and so Woolsey's like, I can find some problems, and he does. He finds that Anne is sleeping around, 
apparently. And now Henry is also sleeping around and Henry has already fallen in love with someone else. And so Henry basically tells Cromwell to find something wrong with Anne. We don't know for sure if Anne had multiple relationships with other people of the court, but that is what she is convicted of and what she is killed for. So she will be killed in 1536. And when she's killed on the Tower Green, Henry, of course, does not uh, go to the execution, but he does hear it. And he was so distraught that 10 days later, he married Lady Jane Seymour. And so he did wait a week. That was nice. And by the time he gets to Lady Jane Seymour, uh, he is desperately in love with her. She is very different than both Anne Boleyn and uh, Catherine of Aragon. But uh, Lady Jane Seymour will give him his son uh, about a year later. And his name is Edward. And then she will die. So it is a very, it's kind of one of those difficult time periods in English history, especially for Henry, because Lady Jane Seymour was seen as his, his favorite, his best wife, because she gives him a son. And then she dies. And it's kind of one of those times in history where someone does everything right and then has no opportunity to do anything wrong. And so in, in Henry's mind, Lady Jane Seymour was the perfect wife. And so from then on, she will actually be painted within his family portrait as a ghost for the rest of his family portraits. So on this next uh, painting here, this is Lady Jane Seymour right over here in the corner. She's dead. And this is his new wife, which is Anne of Cleves. And so through family portraits going forward, she'll just kind of always be there, even though he does have three other wives later. Now, I'm going to give you two quick commercial breaks. I apologize, but they're important for us now and later. First of all, when Henry breaks away from the Catholic Church, there is an economic advantage to doing this. The Catholic Church owned a lot of land. And if you break away from the Catholic Church, now you own that land because the Catholic Church is no longer part of your country. And so he takes the land from the Catholic Church, dissolves the monasteries, and what he'll do is he'll sell that land back to his gentry and nobility in order to make profit. Now, that is smart for him at the time. It's really good for the land gentry later because they are the ones who are going to start moving towards the agricultural revolution. And so it will not probably, it probably would not have happened the same way if a lot of that land still remained in the hands of the Catholic Church. And so even though it does take a couple of uh, things to spur on the agricultural revolution, things like the enclosure laws and things like that, and the removal of the open field system, which we'll talk about later, this will help in kind of that movement later. The other thing I want to briefly talk about is called the Pilgrimage of Grace. Now, the Pilgrimage of Grace is a period where Many Catholics in England who wanted to remain Catholic will band together and try to reorganize a bunch of Northern Catholics into what is going to be uh, a protest of England going to the Church of England. Henry is worried about this because he doesn't want it to spread because it is somewhat spreading in the north. So he sends his army to put this down and he actually does. He puts it down relatively quickly. 
but this is called the pilgrimage of grace because it's kind of an example of people fighting for their beliefs, their religious beliefs within England um, and dying for their religious beliefs in England during a period of significant religious strife, both in England and on the continent, which we'll talk about later when we go back to the continent. Um, Now, his next marriage after Lady Jane Seymour is to a young lady named Anne of Cleves. And this is a marriage of convenience or alliance. And he does this because his uh, advisor, Cromwell, says, hey, why don't we make an alliance with the Northern Lutherans? Because obviously the Catholics are not going to be a good alliance. We can't do that. So why don't we have an alliance with the Northerners? Uh, We'll ally ourselves with the Lutherans. It'll help combine us against the Catholics. Apparently, Henry did not like Anne of Cleves much at all. He met her once or twice. Uh, he, He obviously probably knew her more than that, but never spent much time with her at all. Um, probably because he was in love with someone else. So he is apparently desperately in love with Anne Boleyn's cousin, and that is uh, Catherine Howard. Um, Now, at this time, he's a pretty older guy. He's like 49 years old, and Catherine Howard is 18. So she's a little younger than him. Um, But back then, while that does sound like a significant difference in age back then that was actually not all that weird um it was also not weird to marry your cousin back then so uh that'll also be part of this story later now not for henry different one he divorces anne of cleves actually annuls the marriage to anne of cleves so that he can marry catherine howard catherine howard is also brought up on crimes of committing adultery with uh, a number of members of the court and like her cousin will also be beheaded for adultery on the tower green and that will be the end of wife number five and then he marries Catherine Parr now this is a picture of Henry now I told you that he started as a relatively fit individual and uh, the problem he had was a significant hunting accident that rendered him Uh, mostly debilitated in regards to walking even at times. And so he still liked to eat um, quite a bit. And if you've ever been to the House of Prime Rib, they actually name one of their prime rib cuts after King Henry. It's called the King's Cut. It's just this giant prime rib, right? And he was known for just massive feasts all the time. So he ate quite a bit um, and gained quite a weight in the process. We're not sure exactly how big he is, but we're thinking he probably was close to 300 pounds if he wasn't uh, 300 pounds of sheer muscle. Yeah, no. Um, And then the last wife is Catherine Parr. Say again. Yes, a Greek boxer, really. Now, Catherine Parr, I see Catherine Parr as Henry's somewhat of like a platonic equal. Like he saw her as a very similar um, kindred spirit to himself. They're both kind of that Renaissance humanist ideology. She was a very educated lady. Um, She had written a number of prayer books and meditations and things. Um, She was very well studied and well learned, which meant that she probably could speak Latin as well as England, much like Henry, uh, as well as English, much like Henry. And so I think that his relationship with Catherine Parr was far more platonic than it was uh, physical. Um, And 
she outlives him. So the jingle is uh, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Um, so if you're trying to remember all six wives in order, that possibly could help. Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Um, now, I realize Henry VIII seems like a bit of a just chaotic, ironic basket of just what just happened kind of thing, right? And I, I get that. But he did have a number of things that he accomplished during his rule that I, I think really puts England towards the forefront now. And back in the day um, that we're talking about, if Europe is just a weird-looking rhombus or something like this, uh, the wealth of Europe is all down here during the first part of this period, 1450 to about 1550. And then Philip II happens in Spain. And Philip II finds a way to just destroy the southern economy. And we'll talk about that as we go. And then all of the wealth of Europe starts to just get pushed to the, to the north and to the west. To the point where Amsterdam is a really popular and wealthy city. And England becomes a really wealthy area as well. And then parts of France by the time you get to the 1650s under Louis Fourteenth, So... The, the wealth really gets pushed out of the south and it goes west and it goes north. And that's what we call the Atlantic region of Europe. Um, and so it goes away from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic region. And you can, I'll get rid of the drawing there. So here's what Henry does before he dies. Because <laughs> this is what he did before this. Is he said every time he took a new wife, he called his old daughter, because he had two daughters before he had a son, he called the old daughters illegitimate. It's like, yeah, you don't get the throne. Sorry. And then he brought them back into the will. And then he said, no, you don't get the throne. And then he brought them back into the will. And so the will ends up looking like this. So the act of succession at the end of Henry will say, Edward inherits the throne after Henry. If Edward dies with no children, which he will, Mary becomes queen. If Mary dies with no children, which she will, Elizabeth becomes queen. If Elizabeth dies with no children, then the lineage of his sister Mary, then they come in. Now, this will be a bit of a problem because this group down here at the bottom will start thinking that they have claim to the throne for a variety of reasons. The biggest reason is what we talked about earlier and that's that Elizabeth might not actually be Henry's daughter. And so you have a bit of an issue with Mary, Queen of Scots, who's the uh, daughter of Mary. So you get uh, that dynamic that'll happen later. And eventually Elizabeth, during her reign, will kill Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, after having her in the, the tower for a number of years, um, she eventually gets rid of her. But, yeah. Henry's sister is Mary. The daughter becomes Mary, Queen of Scots. There is a, yeah, there is a movie on that. Um, so I have to go back and look at a lineage chart to get the exact lineage. I might I might have a, a small blip in there that I'm missing, and that's possible. But Mary, Queen of Scots, who eventually is about the same age as Elizabeth, they're about equal age-wise, 
will vie for the throne of England um, because she thinks she has a claim to it. And it's possible that if Elizabeth is not the heir of Henry, that she does have a claim to it. And most of the, all of the Catholic world will back Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, so th they did make a movie on this. I uh, haven't seen it yet because it's really difficult for me to get my wife to go to a history movie. Um, the last time I got her to go to one was Lincoln, and she counted the ceiling tiles till she fell asleep. <laughs> so it's really hard for me to get my wife to go. So I have to wait till they come back on video. And so I will watch it and let you know if it's accurate because I want it to be. I want it to be accurate. I just don't know. I haven't seen it. Um, but I'll try. I'll go back and look at it later. Now, here's young Edward. Now, Edward's nine. There he is. He's adorable. Now, when you're nine, you don't take over. What you do is you take over and then someone takes over with you. They're called a regent. So if you, if you do need to put something in your vocabulary section, you could add a regent, R-E-G-E-N-T, to your vocab. You're also going to be adding a little bit more vocab here in a second or in probably 10 slides. Now, Edward was very young. And he will rule with his mother's brother, Edward, also named Edward. Yeah, just to make it extra confusing. And Edward will do mostly harm and not much good and get chased out of office as a regent by the other members of the council. But don't worry, Edward's going to die pretty soon anyway, so it doesn't last very long. Remember how I told you that Henry's reign and really his children's reign is just all a bunch of irony. It's like a basket of irony. Edward finally gets his son and his son lives to be 14 because his son dies at, at probably from tuberculosis or some form of a lung disease and doesn't survive for very long at all. He's a very sickly boy his entire life. Um, thank you. So what Dudley does is he's basically in charge but edward gets to do one thing and that's deal with religion which is all that he cares about he's just this young kid who cares only about religion that's it and edward is a calvinist just like his mom and so a lot of things that he does are very calvinist leaning um he makes the the church services in england done in all english which is important it's a very humanist thing to do that's called what starts with a v the vernacular, right? So he utilizes the vernacular. Instead of having services done in Latin, he's doing services in English, and they have to be done in English. It's called the Act of Uniformity, which he passes in 1549. So it makes all the Church of England done as the Church of England, and it's all done in English. So everyone does it together. The other thing that he does is he dies. That was about it. Um, but before he dies, he finds time to mess up the act of succession. So he goes, okay, so if I die, he knows he's dying. If I die, I'm worried that my sister Mary is going to take over. Why? Mary is super Catholic. And Edward is the opposite of Catholic. And so Mary is the granddaughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, who had a bit of an inquisition. And so 
Edward is thinking, this could go badly. So instead of following his dad's act of succession, he writes a new one and says his cousin, Jane Grey, will become the next queen. The English go, uh-uh, no, no. We've done this War of the Roses thing. We're not doing it again. We're not having another civil war over this. And so even though Jane Grey becomes the next one to take the throne, Mary raises a very anti-Jane Grey coalition very quickly, backed by the majority of people in England. By the way, most people in England had no reason to dislike Catherine or no reason to dislike Mary. They were pretty much... They liked both of them for the most part, um, but they're very Catholic. And so Mary comes in, uh, she arrests Jane Grey and then executes her. Um, she's 16. And so you have, uh, you know, Edward lives long enough to basically kill his, you know, cousin, essentially, because his cousin takes the throne. She has no chance of surviving. And Mary comes in and takes it over. And then Mary will be crowned queen. Mary the first, or kindly known as Bloody Mary. Now, what Mary does, remember, super Catholic. What do you think the first thing she does is? Makes them Catholic again right away. All right, we're Catholic. The Protestants see this could go bad. So they leave, most of them. Many of them go to Switzerland. If they went to Switzerland, they were probably Calvinist. If they went to the Netherlands, uh, they were probably Lutheran. But many of them leave, especially the ones that were like hardcore Protestants. So there's some, most of the common people in England were probably just thinking, what religion are we today? They don't really care. Um, but people that were really religious, the higher level religious figures like Cramner and other like that, they would have wanted to leave. Now, Cramner... Uh, gets a bit of in trouble because who was Cramner? He's the one that said, hey, Henry, break away from the Catholic Church. You can divorce Catherine. So Mary's like, uh-uh, revenge killing. So she kills the guy that basically got her mom divorced. And that's Cramner. Yeah, what a good daughter. We will not forget. Um, and what comes very quickly after that is her killing about 300 Protestants. And that's when she earns the title of Bloody Mary. Good times. One thing that is interesting is that it, at the t same time in the continent, the religious wars were also devastating a number of people. And it, to kill 300 Protestants in England was significantly less than other people were killing in, in the continent. But... For England, this is a pretty decent number. So that's why she gets the number of Bloody Mary or the, the name uh, Bloody Mary. Now, the other thing she does is she marries her cousin because she wants to make an alliance with Spain. And remember when I told you the Spanish had a bit of a problem with incest? They do. And Philip II is the one who takes over after Charles V rage quits after Peace of Augsburg, right? And Philip II takes over, and his goal in life is to re-Catholicize Europe. And so in order to help in that process, he marries Mary, who is his cousin. It's actually his second cousin, so I guess we'll cut him some slack. Uh, 
But they never actually have children, so thank goodness for their children. But if anyone's been to Spain or actually to Philip II's palace, which he'll create called El Escorial, which is about 30 miles outside of Madrid, it is a, um, it's a palace, but it's also a tomb. Because in the basement, they have what they call the Crypt of Kings. And all of the great kings of Spain are, are uh, buried in there. And they also have the Crypt of Infants, where all of their inbred children are buried as well. And so it's, it's actually really scary when you walk through it because the Crypt of Kings is so much smaller than the Crypt of Infants. And you just walk through these rooms of these kids that were so inbred. And it became very common at the time for the Spanish to intermarry, uh, which is also somewhat documented in its own way in Game of Thrones. So um, the problem Mary has is that she gets sick and dies. And while she is getting sick, she, we think that she had some version of a brain disease or a brain tumor or something like that because she starts seeing visions and uh, having weird dreams and getting woken up in the middle of the night. And she's haunted by all sorts of – like some people thought she was schizophrenic and all sorts of things, right? Mary, uh, immediately once she realizes she's probably going to die, she goes to Elizabeth, who is next in line for the throne, and she says, Elizabeth – please promise me that you're going to keep England Catholic. And Elizabeth goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, and Mary's like, no, 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 I need a promise. And, and Elizabeth's like, mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and then Mary dies. And Elizabeth takes over. And Philip goes, you want to get married? <laughs> and Elizabeth's like, uh, no. So Philip invades her twice. Uh, so no. um, the first thing that Philip does actually is not invade her. The first thing he does is starts rumors about Elizabeth that she's not legitimate. She goes, uh, Philip starts sending people to England to start rumors that Elizabeth is not the legitimate heir to Henry and that Anne Boleyn was having relationships with everyone. And who knows who was Elizabeth's father and whatnot, uh, all this kind of stuff, right? This is obviously after Elizabeth said no. And then later on, he will invade her twice with the Spanish Armada, both times not doing so well, Um, which is pretty cool for Elizabeth for a variety of reasons. Um, And there's two reasons why she wins, technically. One of them is more of a mystic reason. They called it the Protestant winds, but it was really just weather. Um, The Spanish were very good at sailing when there's no weather. And then they got to the English Channel. And if you know anything about the English Channel, it's really foggy. It's really bad weather, rain all the time. The Spanish are like, where are we? Um, but they, many of them shipwrecked on the side of uh, English coast. And so they called that the Protestant winds, that they pushed them against the, the coast. The other reason is um, Sir Francis Drake. So Elizabeth's friend was Sir Francis Drake, who may have been a bit of a pirate. And he was actually known for um, a number of things. But one thing he was known for is fire ships. You guys know what fire ships are? Basically, you light a ship on fire and just push it at another ship. And back then, when the Spanish had this giant Spanish armada, they got these giant gunboats that can't go very fast. And so you just watch as a fire ship just slowly makes its way to your demise. Um, It is. It's like watching a train wreck, but you're on the train, Um, (laughs) which is is kind of disappointing, I think. Yes. Uh, So anyway, uh, which is also documented in Game of Thrones. Now, um, 
Elizabeth, what is cool about Elizabeth is that she goes out in the, against the Spanish Armada in full battle gear and rides out with her army. And it's her way of kind of saying, look, I'm with you in this. And back then, she had to do a number of things to kind of convince her people that she was the one in their corner. And she does that throughout her reign. One of the other things that she does that's brilliant, you can write this down because it's not in the notes either, but it's really smart. Um, Parliament came to her a variety of times saying, hey, will you marry this person? Will you marry that person? Will you marry Philip? No, 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 don't marry Philip. Like, just marry someone. And Elizabeth just kept saying, no, 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 no. And eventually she makes this speech to Parliament and she says, um, essentially in the speech, I'm paraphrasing, today I will marry my country. And the reason that that's important is that she is adopting the gender roles of the period for her benefit. Think of it like this. Back then, if you're the wife, what is your job? To do the husband's bidding. Like whatever the husband tells you to do, that's what you do. And so if parliament goes, hey, we want to do this, all Mary has to do is say, I'm just doing the will of my people. They want me to do this. And no one can tell her, no, no, that's not. She, all she has to say is, I'm just doing the will of my people. So she actually adopts, it's a really brilliant Jedi mind trick. She adopts the role of a woman in that period to her advantage and says, I'm the wife of my country. I know what's best for my country. It's very smart. Um, and this is also not in your notes. I don't know why I didn't put it in there, but it's, she will usher in what we call the golden age of England. So for about 40 years, England will be at the forefront of most of Europe. Now, the other thing that she's known for, and this is a term you're going to want to put in your unit guide as well, is the term politique. P-O-L-I-T-I-Q-U-E. And to be a politique means that you put your government and your people in front of your own personal beliefs. Some, someone earlier was like, you mean be a good person? <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. Back in the day, this was not generally how people ruled. A little bit later, you'll get the absolutist rulers who believed that they were the embodiment of their country. They could do no wrong because their country needed them to be strong, absolute rulers. And the two politiques that we have in European history as examples are Elizabeth. And I'll tell you why she becomes one here in a second. And the other one is the one who had a bit of a uh, red wedding. That's Henry IV. So remember when Henry IV is a Huguenot, but he converts to be a Catholic, but then he makes it legal, not illegal, legal to be a Huguenot? That is a very politique move. I'll be a Catholic in name. I'm probably still a Huguenot in my heart, and I'm going to save the Huguenots from persecution because this is what's best for my country. Elizabeth will do something very similar. The first thing that she does is she passes the Act of Supremacy and Act of uh, Uniformity again. So she makes it back to the Church of England. 
I know, I told you, her mom was a Lutheran, which means that she possibly was a closet Lutheran. But that doesn't matter to her. The only thing that matters is that they have some stability. Think of it like this. We get Henry come in. Henry's Catholic, and then Henry's not Catholic, so now they're Church of England. And then Edward's Calvinist, and then Mary's Catholic, and then Elizabeth takes over. And if you're an average person, you're just like, what are we? What are we? What are we supposed to be? What doesn't get me killed? And so what Elizabeth says is, and this is a direct quote from her, she says, I will make no windows into men's souls, which is kind of the don't ask, don't tell policy of the day. It's like, what you are in private is up to you. I'm not going to ask. But just don't be a problem in public. And for the English people, that sounds like a decent deal. That's good enough. So if you're English and you've had about 20 years of chaos, this 40 years under Elizabeth is going to feel a lot easier. It's going to feel like, okay, let's work on the country thing, not the what religion are we today. And so she becomes kind of known as a politique because she's, she almost puts her own beliefs aside to do what's best for her country. And I think that's a pretty smooth move as well. Um, that's the quote if you need. I, I would put the quote down. I find this to be a really good way of demonstrating a politique. It's also a good way to have evidence in regards to Elizabeth. I've seen in the past on AP exams uh, Elizabeth be the actual DBQ was on Elizabeth um, before. I don't think they'll do one on Elizabeth again. They may. They may also, one way that they can do it and not do it specifically on Elizabeth is to maybe compare Elizabeth to another ruler. So say something like um, analyze the way in which Elizabeth's reign is similar to Catherine the Great or something like that. Um, all right. We'll stop there. We got through pretty much everything I needed to get through, and we will start on Monday with the rest of the Reformation.